It's our third week in the chapter that is sometimes called a second fall of man. It's called that second fall of man because the God who made himself known is proven very clearly to not be known at all by the very people that he came to save. Two weeks back, we learned about this convergence of God's justice and his mercy and how that can only happen through a mediator. Last week, we put sin underneath a a microscope and we examined the songs of sin that the people sang. We also heard the stories that Aaron told of lies. Today, we come to a, a portion of this text that has to deal with something that has not yet been dealt with, and that is that sin has not been atoned for, that those who actually remain unrepentant have not suffered for their sin, in a sense. This is brutal, and yet what I believe you'll see when we study the text is that it's actually deeply comforting for God's people. So we'll pick up Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 25, and we'll read through verse 35. And I'll remind you that this is God's word written. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father, as we open your word and read it, we recognize that We must have the help of your Holy Spirit in order to understand and apply it to our lives. And so we ask for the ministry of your Spirit to be among us, that you would give to your people who are hungry and thirsty uh, the food that we need. Give us the ears to hear what your Spirit says to your church. And would you once more use a sinful man like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Relationships are costly, and they're always potentially risky. Bo and his family moved next door to me and my family when I was five years old, and our friendship got off to a little bit of a rocky start. 
was trying to talk to Bo. Bo was kind of shy. So I thought it might be fun to climb up into the treehouse that my dad had built. And so we climbed up there, hoping to strike up a conversation. Bo didn't say a word. This will surprise you. At that point, I was too young in my life to recognize that not everyone wants to talk incessantly, as I do. Not everybody meets strangers with joy. But I noticed at the top of the treehouse that the one sound that Bo would make is that he would moan a little bit painfully and nervously when the treehouse shook. And so, with my sin nature on full display, I began to shake the treehouse with all my might. Bo climbed down with his fearful moan and he took off running back to his house, probably thinking a relationship with that kid is going to be costly and risky. Well, days passed. Bo and I began to hang out more and more. We throw baseball, we ride bikes, we go down to the creek. I think we've kind of developed a friendship. One day at the creek, we're standing on the bridge, which is seven feet above the water, and Bo's on the other side, and he, he says, hey, come look at this fish over here. And I said, well, I can't go across the street. My parents don't let me cross the road right here. And then suddenly, I'm totally confused, facing Bo, he darts toward me as if he's been shot out of a rocket. I'm staring at him trying to figure out what he's doing with my back to the creek and Bo shoves me off the back of the bridge. It was seven foot fall. I felt like a hundred. And so I get up wet and bruised and furious. Clearly a relationship with Bo is going to be costly and risky. We ended up being great friends, next-door neighbors for the next 15 or so years until we went off to college. You've got stories like I do, stories that illustrate that relationships with people can be costly or risky. Sometimes it's easy to forget that relationships with the Lord can also be costly and risky. We forget that, I think, because we get so used to our sin patterns, kind of comfortable with them. We forget that following Christ really does have some cost. It's not something that people have forgotten in much of church history, because wherever Christians have been persecuted, they've been taught, you can't forget that it is costly to follow Christ. And so our text teaches this very thing. Your relationship with Christ comes at great cost, both to you and to him. We'll examine our passage under two points this morning, the cost of discipleship, and then secondly, the offer declined. Let's start with the cost of discipleship. I've noticed, and maybe you have too, when it comes to following the Lord, discipleship with the Lord Jesus, at least two sins are common. The first is a mistaken belief that Jesus' death, as costly as it was, has been taken care of fully and completely by him, and therefore it will cost me nothing to follow him. In other words, I'll just simply think about his death. I'll identify with him in some set of beliefs as if that alone is discipleship. What happens then, of course, is that misunderstanding leads us to a kind of laziness. It leads us to no changed life at all. And yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. 
which means, says Jesus, that if you're going to follow me, then you are going to embrace the very pattern of life that I had on this earth. Jesus, of course, died to himself. You and I are to learn to die to our sin and to ourselves so that sanctification is a work of God's grace, but it's not a passive work. The other mistake and the belief that people often fall into, I believe, is one that they get into by accident. They desire earnestly to follow the Lord in real holiness. Somewhere along the way, they begin to shift gears and think, what can I do for Jesus? And then the the concept of a relationship is lost, and what Christ has done for you is forgotten. So that what begins out of a desire to, to show forth your gratitude morphs into what I must give up for the Lord, what rules I must follow, And over time, that can result in a kind of guilt-ridden burden of failure. I'm not doing enough. I'm never doing enough. And then this feeling of bitterness. Well, he's not accepting me because I'm not doing enough. This is a passage, I think, that corrects both of those errors. And it does so by answering questions that are related to sin's consequences and a, and a consecrated life and then also the atonement issues, like how is sin going to be paid for. In this passage, you should notice there's something that's going on at a spiritual level and then also other matters that are handled at ground level. Moses has already dealt with the object of their affection, that, that bull cast in gold, has been ground to dust. That's one of the consequences of sin. Actually, that's the way it works. You build idols, the Lord will show you that they are nothing but dust. They fail you again and again. Of course, the bull is not the only problem. Moses has to deal with the affection of the heart of the people. It's a, it's a heart problem. It's not that the bull is the major threat. It's the fact that the people love the bull more than they love God's word. And they must be dealt with instantly. Moses goes to the gate of the camp. It's a symbol. He's showing that there is a distinction between those who are counted among God's people and those who are outside of God's people. Every English translation tries to smooth out Moses' words. There really are no verbs in what Moses says. He literally says, whoever for Yahweh to me. You should not miss this. Moses is issuing a, a call for repentance. Who among you wants to turn from his sin? Who among you wants to come back and embrace the Lord who saved us? And the Bible says that all of the sons of Levi gathered around him. All the sons, who would be among that group? The most recently publicly rebuked, embarrassed, sheepish, Aaron, who, like Moses, is of the tribe of Levi, probably a lot of other people, who had only recently been worshiping this bull calf themselves. To their credit, they say, we're going to turn away from a cow and we're going to turn to the Creator. And God speaks through the mouth of Moses. Look at verse 27. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And you read that and you go, oh, goodness gracious. 
What do we do with that? If, if I belong to Christ, how do I explain such a graphic scene? Well, all of this is telling us something about the character of God so that if we want to be his disciples, we need to rightly understand what he intends to show us. Number one, God is holy in every way. So holy that he cannot abide unfaithfulness, let alone the kind of high treason of one who would choose to love him, and, excuse me, love sin more than they love him. That's why Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death because every sin really is an act of unfaithfulness to God. You and I don't think that way. We think, well, this was a big one, that was a small one, something like that. But in God's economy, the spiritual consequence of every single sin is death from Aaron all the way down to the youngest in the camp. The second thing you notice, though, is that God is willing to show mercy. He's completely holy, but he's willing to show mercy. That's actually why Moses calls them to repent. And the summons is really clear. Do you stand with the Lord or do you choose to remain in your sin? And so for this generation who saw the plagues back in Egypt, uh, there is a testimony, if they will remember it, of their options. To love the false gods of sin more than the Lord is basically to say, I'm going to try my chances with this righteous God who judges sin. But you notice, thirdly, that there's another chance for mercy. And here's what I mean. We misread this passage. God did not call the Levites to kill everyone. In fact, the language is so much more careful than that. To go back and forth throughout the camp from one end to the other is to carefully and systematically approach every person to find out whether they intend to return to the Lord. In fact, the Levites are going forward looking for hearts of repentance. Doug Stewart says those found committing idolatry must be killed. Those sorry for being caught up in it must now actively repent in order to be spared. There's actually two chances before anyone dies. The first when Moses calls out who's on the Lord's side. And the second as the sword approaches, are you prepared to walk with the Lord or not? In other words, will you be a disciple of Yahweh? Or will you die separated from him? Verse 28, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. That day about 3,000 men of the people fell. If you believe that the Bible is God's word written, if you belong to Christ, here's what you notice. It is actually shocking that only 3,000 men died. And you might say, well, that's a horrific loss. In fact, if the wages of sin is death and, and everyone at the base of the mountain is committing this sin, surely God has the right to put the entire nation to death. And yet you see this aspect of God's character which actually summons me to deeper discipleship. Even when God's wrath comes down upon sin, he somehow still remembers to be merciful. Pressing question here is not why did 3,000 unrepentant sinners die? 
The more profound question is why did he allow the other two million sinners to live? Friends, the unrepentant die because they refuse to turn from their spiritual infidelity. They actually choose to die. They say, no, I'll take death. God is too holy to let the unrepentant guilty go free. And so, in fact, the unrepentant guilty died for their sin. But the willingly repentant are spared. It is sheer mercy that God saves the millions. Verse 29, Moses says, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. This is the verse that tells you that this is about spiritual discipleship. First, God's claim on his people is higher than every other human relationship. That's why we use Matthew chapter 10 this morning in our New Testament lesson. Jesus says, to follow me, you must bring every other love of every other person under the reign of your higher love for me. So Christ isn't saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hate your family. I want you to hate your friends. No, he says the cost of discipleship means that every other human relationship is second to this relationship with Christ. And so in that sense, you and I can rightly say a relationship with Christ really is costly. It really is risky. If you have parents who tell you, hey, we kind of think you're overdoing this whole Jesus thing. I think it's a phase. You should love Christ more than you love mom and dad. If your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't know Christ, you cannot move forward in marriage with them. You must love Christ more. If that guy or that girl that you like is leading you into sexual immorality, you must love Christ more. It may mean you have to break up with them. Because of your higher love to Christ, every other relationship must be subservient. Secondly, sin is serious. Just as the Levites were ordained to the service of the Lord by the death of their brothers, you have also been ordained to service of the Lord by the death of Christ, by his resurrection. In fact, here's the high cost of discipleship. This side of the cross, God doesn't call you to put to death sinners in general. He calls you to put to death sin Specifically, in the Old, Old Testament, this phrase, put to death, it's used like more than a hundred times, and it's usually used like this. Among the people of God, put to death this person or that person who sins in this particular way or that particular way. But in the New Testament, that phrase, put to death, is not directed at the sinful person in the camp It's actually directed at the sinful person in here. Romans 8, 13. If you live by the Spirit, you must put to death the deeds of the body. 
Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, sin is so serious a cancer to your soul that Sinclair Ferguson says, put sin to death, refuse it, starve it, reject it. You cannot mortify sin in your own life without the pain of the kill. There is no other way. And yet the Bible warns us that you cannot simply kill sin without replacing it with something else. If you've never read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, that's what this is all about. It's beautiful. As God's word and his spirit show you your sin and you put it to death very specifically, you replace that sin with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You replace that sin with the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. You replace that sin with the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You replace that sin with a fellowship that we share in the body of Christ. Thirdly, in the Old Covenant, the holiness of God's people was guarded by the power of the sword. In the new covenant with Christ, the church no longer carries the power of the sword, but rather we carry the spiritual power of church discipline, which means that one of the costs of discipleship is that I say I am going to come under the care of God's church in discipline, and that takes two forms. The first is what you and I might call formative discipline, and that is you are here being shaped by the Word of God, read and preached, and over time as you come and engage in God's Word and the Spirit sends forth that Word, it is forming you and shaping you and carving off those edges. And that is beautiful. That's one of the many reasons that church attendance matters. I'm bringing myself to be shaped by Christ. There's also corrective discipline. And that is that fourth commitment that every member makes. I submit myself to the government and discipline of the church. I'm actually coming under them. The Lord has given to his church elders who are charged by God to shepherd and oversee the souls of God's people. And these men, some of whom were newly elected this morning, these these men are called by God to that purpose. And so... Why does God do that? Because there really are worst case scenarios in life where people sin in unrepentant, notorious, scandalous ways, in which case the elders are charged to pursue and lovingly try to bring that person back. Your relationship with Christ comes at great cost both to you and to him. So we've covered the cost of discipleship. Now let's look at the offer declined even with all that has transpired Moses has some sense that the wrath of God has not been satisfied and you might say well how is that possible I mean 3,000 people fell well but of course those were the unrepentant who died as punishment for their own sins they actually had no interest in trusting the Lord for salvation but then you might wonder how in the world could atonement be made for the rest of this population that's the issue that Moses is concerned about too he has an idea I know what I'll do I'll go up to the Lord myself I'll offer to exchange my soul for the people of Israel verse 30 You've sinned a great sin. Now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement 
for your sins. And Moses goes up to the Lord, and with extraordinary honesty, he declares exactly what they have done. Verse 32, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The English Standard Version of the Bible translates this so beautifully. It is a powerful, dangling offer that is left hanging in the air, and God says, no. Offer declined. Verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Sounds scary. One Hebrew scholar says this is one of the Bible's stronger statements about the absolute necessity for the forgiveness of sins and therefore for a savior. In fact, here in Exodus is a desperate cry for the Christ. Moses can't atone for the sins of the people. The man who has been up on a mountain dwelling in the midst of God for the last 40 days, he can't do anything to save these people. Why not? Because he's got sins of his own. This is a a man who is a murderer among many other things. A sinner can't atone for sinners. God's standard of justice would not accept such a flawed offer, which is why this dangling fragment speaks so loudly. But if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, you recognize how different Moses' offer declined is from Christ's atonement secured. Hebrews chapter, 12, chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption for God's people. So even as Moses tries to peer into God's book, God says, Moses, I control the book. You can't make atonement for anyone. And so here's the gospel in an Old Testament nutshell. No one will have eternal life without sins forgiven. There are no automatic bids. Nobody gets into eternity without, with some outward goodness or some family connections. Because God's perfect judgment requires that sins must be forgiven, which means you must have a Savior, and it's not you, Moses. You see, God's drawing a line for Moses. There are two realms here, the heavenly and the earthly. God says, I'll handle what's going on up here. Look at verse 34. But now you go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so here on this earthly level, God wants Moses to go ahead, to move towards the promised land in spite of all of the massive rebellion of Exodus 32, God makes a promise that's actually extraordinary. I'll go with you. But sin always has natural consequences. In this case, it's a plague. Moses doesn't tell us what kind, but the point is really obvious. They ignored Yahweh. 
They worshipped Egyptian gods. Therefore, they received the natural consequences that the Egyptian themselves received. Plagues for the Egyptian people. Plagues to those who worship like Egyptian people. To be clear, this doesn't mean there's no forgiveness. But Moses can't give it. But God can. For those who genuinely trust in the Lord, there will be actual forgiveness. But you see, it's only when you read the rest of the Bible that you begin to understand how this works. In God's economy, their sins will be atoned 1,400 years back by a salvation which will be won on the cross when Christ dies for their sins. All they have to do in their life is to look forward and believe in faith that God is going to provide the atonement that must be made. All of this, of course, is a reminder that even with forgiveness of sins, God still goes with you. There are sometimes natural consequences to your actions. Perhaps some of you need to be reminded of this today. You know that you have sinned. In fact, you may be deeply troubled by the magnitude of what you've done. It may not be 20 years ago. It may be this last week. It may be this morning. Our text closes with this reminder. If you trust in Christ by faith, this physical promise that was made to Moses is also true for you, spiritually speaking. And that is that God still goes with you. His presence is still with you in spite of your sins. And yet in this life, there really are natural consequences to sin. Why do you need to know that? Because in moments of great trial, you and I are liable to get confused. Is God punishing me? Why is my world falling apart around me? What have I done to deserve this? And the tender-hearted person will say, oh, I've done a ton. I've been awful. I deserve a pile of burden even bigger than this. And they think they're actually paying for their own sins, that they're being punished for their sins. The hard-hearted person says, I've done nothing. I've lived a really good life. I don't deserve any of this. Of course, they believe too that they would have to be punished for their sins and they don't deserve this. But the Bible says that you cannot read your circumstances through a lens of punishment. If you get drunk and you wake up with a hangover, well, that's just a natural consequence. If you talk about person B to person A and person B finds out that you've been talking to person A and person B is mad, that's just a natural consequence. If you choose to use food or drink to deal with your emotions and your body begins to suffer for the way you've treated it, that's a natural consequence. So many other ways that sins lead to natural consequences. Parents, if your child disobeys you and suffers the natural consequence of disobedience, the very best thing you can do is allow them to experience the natural consequences to have what God intended to show them why shouldn't I spare them that pain no God is so wise that he knows 
that whether it's children or adults, natural consequences serve as a warning. Discipleship is costly. Sin and disobedience is always much more costly. And it often comes with a sting. How costly is sin? It is so costly that it took the brutal death of the sinless God-man. It took the death of Christ to atone for your sin, to even make a relationship possible. How costly is discipleship? So costly that you and I are going to have to learn the pain of the kill. We'll have to learn what it means to feel the actual sting as we put our own sin to death and we come back and embrace Christ's mercy again and again and again. Your relationship comes at a great cost, both to you and to him. Let's give thanks to God. Lord, we pray that you will bind your word to our hearts. We thank you for it. We pray that we would understand it. We ask that you would cause it to land in the hearts of your people. And Father, now we pray that you would welcome us through Christ, comfort us with this gospel, and convict us where we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.